0: Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, open to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22. We have been, since January, in this last section of the Gospel of Luke, looking at the most important week in the history of the world. The week from where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a Sunday, cleansed the temple on Monday, debated with religious leaders on Tuesday, taught His disciples on Wednesday, shared his last meal with him on Thursday, and now we are approaching his death on Friday. And so I'm excited to be preaching God's Word for us today. Again, Luke 22, we're going to start in verse 63 and go through verse 12 of chapter 23. So let's read the Word of God together today. This is the Word of the Lord. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And, when they, and then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it from ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, And was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been at enmity with each other. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for how it shows the grace and the love, the kindness, the self-control of our Savior who in these moments is handing himself over to wicked men to be killed. And so as we Come to Jesus today, Lord, would you help us to see in him a king who brings a kingdom that's unlike this world, a kingdom where the greatest among us becomes the least, a kingdom where our king lays down his life to rescue us and to save us, even from ourselves. So as we look to the trials of Jesus today, may we be overwhelmed with the love that our Savior has. And may we respond to His love with faith and obedience and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a trial can change your life. A trial can change your life. I don't know about you, but sometimes we, we watch the news and we see these high-profile trials, and it doesn't really matter much for our lives. Maybe it's the trial of a famous movie star who's suing his ex-wife, or maybe it's the trial of a successful lawyer for the killing of his wife and son. We watch these trials on the news, and they don't really affect us much. But a trial can change your life when you're the one who's involved. Maybe you've been the one who stood before a judge because of a speeding ticket or some crime that you've maybe committed. Maybe you were the one who was picked for jury duty and you're sitting there having to decide the fate of someone else, whether or not they were guilty or innocent. Or maybe you're here today watching to see what the Supreme Court is going to decide with these student loans, whether or not they're really going to be forgiven. Sometimes a trial can change your life. It can change the direction of your life. It can Be a defining moment in your life. A trial can be the most important moment. And this has never been more true than when Jesus on this day stood trial. His opponents have long sought an opportunity to destroy him. And as we saw earlier, with the help of Judas, his betrayer, they now have Jesus arrested in custody in hopes that they can put him to death. And this is going to be a defining moment for Jesus. Is he going to try to talk his way out of this? Will he fight for his own freedom? Or will he submit to the Father's will and lay down his life for his people? And maybe the more important question is, what are the people in this moment going to do with Jesus? Because you see, Jesus is not the only one on trial here today. He's not the only one in the hot seat. You see, God is speaking to us from his word today, and he's asking us that same question. What are we going to do with Jesus? We are the ones on trial here, in a sense. Are we going to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God? Are we going to follow him as our king? Are we going to love him as he has loved us? So that's the questions before us today, and it's my prayer that as God speaking to us, He would bring us to a defining moment for us today. You see, as Jesus stands trial, my prayer is that we would see that He is worthy of all of our faith, worthy of all of our obedience, worthy of all of our worship. So that's what we're going to see today. I've got three questions for us as we walk through the text. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what did he do? So let's look to the first one. Who is Jesus? So it's early Friday morning, probably around three in the morning. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested by the Jewish leaders. And as we saw last week, Peter has just denied him three times. And Christ stands here in a defining moment. The Jewish leaders have worked really hard to get to this point because they're trying to have Jesus killed. And by the time that 9 a.m. is going to roll around this morning, Jesus will stand trial six times. Six times by nine in the morning. You see, as the crowds of people are just waking up and getting their days started, Jesus has been tried under the cover of darkness and condemned to death. Luke is going to focus in on three of those trials today, the trial before the Jewish council, the first one before Pilate, and then the trial before Herod. But before we get into that, Luke gives us a glimpse of what Jesus was facing during this night. Look at verse 63. Luke tells us the men who were holding Jesus were mocking him and they began to beat him. They put a blindfold on him and and would strike him and say, you're a prophet, tell us who struck you. They continued to revile him and curse him and slander him. You see, the irony of this moment is that Jesus has already prophesied that this was happening. In Luke 18, verse 32, he clearly said, the Son of Man will be delivered over and will be mocked and shamefully treated. Even in their abuse, Jesus proved to be a prophet. And then notice how Luke draws our attention into the trial before the Jewish council. In verse 66, he tells us this trial happened just as the day came, probably around six in the morning. You see, Jesus has already stood before some of these Jewish leaders. But at this point, someone had to go wake up all of these people And get them to gather together so that they could condemn Jesus. There had to be a full number of the council together. And so they're all there around six in the morning. And then the questions begin. Look at verse 67. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. That word Christ means Messiah. And it's a title for God's anointed king. And then notice Jesus' answers. If I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. Jesus knows this is not a genuine question. They're not just curious if he's really the Christ or not. They're looking for a reason to condemn him to death. And notice what he says in verse 69. He says, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The Son of Man is a title from Daniel 7, and that refers to God's human king that he will set up to rule over heaven and earth. Jesus also references Psalm 110, verse 1, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying to them, you're trying to judge me, but I'm the one one day who's going to sit in judgment over you. I'm going to put you as my enemies under my feet. And so they ask him another question. Are you the son of God then? This is another title for God's king. It's a promise connected to 2 Samuel 7, a king who would be the very son of God. And so Jesus, in a roundabout way, says, Yes, you've said so. And then the council decides this is enough to condemn Jesus. He's claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be equal with God in heaven. And so they decided that that is deserving of death. You know, if there's one central question to the Gospels, it's this question, who is Jesus? When Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown, we saw this in Luke 4, they ask, who is this man? Isn't he Joseph's son? When Jesus offers forgiveness to a sinful woman, the Pharisees at that table says, who is this man? He thinks he can forgive sins. When Jesus calms the raging storm, his disciples in the boat ask, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? Do you remember how Jesus asked this question to his disciples in Luke 9? Who do the people say that I am? They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some people think you're Elijah, who was sent back from heaven. Some people think you're just one of the great prophets as of old. You know, these answers are not much different than what we hear in our day today, aren't they? Many people believe Jesus was just a prophet. He was just a good moral teacher. He was just a really, really good man. To many of the Jews, he was just a teacher, especially blessed by God. To Muslims, they see him as Muhammad's opening act, the prophet who led the way for Muhammad. To Buddhists, he was a man of great enlightenment. To Hindus, he was just one of the many appearances of Vishnu, the gods. To New Age, he's a wise sage or a moral philosopher. You see, the question seems to have many answers. Who is Jesus? But there really is only one right answer to that question. Because remember, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, The Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, that's what this trial is all about. This is the defining moment when Jesus confirms what the Gospel of Luke has been telling us all along. Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. And so, friends here today, who do you, who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you're here and you're on the fence about Jesus. Maybe you've thought he was just a good man or he was just a prophet God's word today is confronting you with the identity of Jesus. You see, he's either the son of God or he's nothing. As C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus is either a liar, and what he's claiming here is false, or he's a lunatic, and he's just a crazy man that thinks he's the son of God. And I guess you could even say, maybe he's just a legend. Maybe none of this stuff is even true. It didn't really happen. So you can believe that Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or a legend. Or you can believe that he's Lord. You can believe that he really is who he says that he is. And you see, that word believe is important. Jesus is standing before the Jewish council and he clearly says, I'm the son of God, but they will not believe it. You see, you must believe that Jesus is the son of God. It's not enough to know that he's the son of God. You must believe that he is the son of God. You must trust that he's the son of God. You must confess him as Lord and over all. You must put all your faith and all your hope in him sitting in staff meeting on Monday, and Nathan, who's our youth director, said, knowing that Jesus is Lord doesn't save us. Believing that He is Lord saves us. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and trusting in His life and death and resurrection, that's what saves us. So if you're here and you're on the fence about Jesus, hear the Word of God today. He is the Christ, the Son of God, And He's calling you to put all your faith in Him. He's calling you to turn from your sin. And to trust Jesus. And to treasure Him. So why would you not do that today? Why not do that right now where you're seated? Call upon the name of the Lord and He will save you. You can call out to Jesus and He'll save you. So come to Christ today if you've never done that. And believe that he is who he really says he is. And if you have done that, as many of us have, if you've believed and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, then live like he is the Son of God. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is not a one-time event in your life. It's not something you do once and you're good. We must confess him as Lord each and every day. We must live like he is the son of God every moment of every day. When our feet hit the floor in the moment, in the morning, we need to live like he's the son of God. When we walk into work or when we're at home with our kids, when we're facing suffering in life, whatever the case is, we must live like Jesus is the son of God. Because the truth is, Jesus is worthy of more than just lips that say He is Lord. He's worthy of our lives that prove that He's Lord. He's worthy of our hearts that prove that He is. He's worthy of our fullest devotion that proves that we really believe that He is who He says He is. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Son of the living God. So let's treasure him together. That's, why, that's who Jesus is. Number two, why did Jesus come? Why did he come? So Luke moves us into the next trial of Jesus. In verse 1 of chapter 23, we see the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pilate. Pilate was a governor over this part of the Roman Empire, and the Jews had some freedoms to exercise their religion. But one thing that the Jews could not do was execute criminals. And so if they're going to have Jesus killed, then Pilate is going to have to be the man to do it. And so they begin to lay their case before Pilate in verse 2. Notice what they say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now we know that that accusation is not true, right? I mean, in fact, This was one of the major injustices of this trial. All of these witnesses are filled with false testimony against Jesus. If you can remember a few weeks ago, back in chapter 20, Jesus was plainly asked this question, should we pay this tax of tribute to Caesar? You remember what his answer was? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is his. This accusation is blatantly false. But you see, they don't care because they're not trying to find justice. They're out for blood. And so notice how they accuse Jesus of being a king. They say he claims to be a Christ, a king. Now they think, okay, well, this is surely going to uh, concern Pilate. You see, Rome only has one true king, who's Caesar, and maybe Pilate won't like this. So here in this defining moment, again, Jesus asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And again, in a roundabout way, Jesus says, you have said so. Yes. But notice how Pilate doesn't take the bait. He doesn't really seem to care. He tells the Jewish leaders, look, I don't find any guilt in this man. I don't really care what you think he's done. But they don't really like that. So the text tells us they begin with urgency to accuse Jesus. They say he stirs up the people. He's leading a rebellion, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. It's interesting that they mention teaching. They're trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is a dangerous man. He's leading this rebellion against Rome. He's been going from town to town teaching. And on this issue, they're right. Jesus has been teaching from Galilee to Jerusalem. Ten times in the Gospel of Luke, he mentions the teaching ministry of Jesus. Luke gives us the parables that Jesus taught. He gives us teaching on discipleship and following Christ. There's even a big block of Jesus' teaching in chapter 6, the the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke calls it. And in all this teaching, we see the answer to this question, why did Jesus come? And it's the same question that Pilate asks when he says, are you the king of? Of the Jews. Jesus came to be king and to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Isn't this what the angel told Mary? Your son will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This was Jesus' own message. He said in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. This was his declaration. As he cast demons away, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It was the kingdom of God that he taught his disciples to seek first. He taught them to pray, your kingdom come. And he comforted their worries saying, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He warned the most religious people from missing the kingdom. He invited the most unlikely people to come have a seat in the kingdom. And he welcomed the most sinful people into his gracious kingdom. And so here Jesus is standing before the man who has the power to kill him. And Jesus says, yes, I am a king. And friends, if Jesus is king, then we must bow to him. You see, the question for us today is not, is Jesus king? That's not the question. God's word is clearly proclaiming that Jesus is. The question for us is, is he our king? The question for you is, is he your king? Are we completely surrendered to his kingdom? Are we completely devoted to Christ as our king? king now I want to be clear here there are some people who teach that you can have jesus as savior but not as lord what they mean by that is you can believe in jesus and be forgiven of your sins but not really live like he's the lord of your life friends no one has jesus as savior who does not also have him as lord The salvation of Jesus comes to us when we confess him as Savior and as Lord. There is no salvation unless Jesus is your King. You cannot have him as Savior and not as Lord. And so if that's you, if he's not Lord over your life, that should cause you to question if he really is your Savior. And if Jesus really is our Savior, we should live with him as our King. Now, I know that being said that all of us have areas in our lives where we struggle to submit to King Jesus. We're tempted to seek our own kingdoms, aren't we? We can certainly grow in devoting ourselves to His kingdom. And so I want us to receive this encouragement today. You will never regret surrendering to Christ and to His kingdom. You will never regret it. Pilate will forever be remembered as the one who crucified King Jesus. And I guarantee you he regrets it and will regret it for all of eternity. We will regret our many sins and our failures. We will regret how we have hurt people. We will regret wasting our lives on empty pursuits. But friends, we will never regret living for king jesus we will never regret praying your kingdom come we will never regret seeking first his kingdom we will never regret giving up everything so that we might gain the greatest treasure in christ we will never regret giving our all to the one who gave his all To live and to die and to rise again for us. Is surrendering to Jesus hard? Yes. Will we ever regret it? Never. So brothers and sisters, Jesus came to be king, so let's surrender to him and live for his kingdom. That's why he came. Lastly, number three, what did he do? We've seen who Jesus is, we've seen why he came, or let's see now what he did. So Luke moves us into the next trial of Jesus in verse 6. Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, that was the Jewish hill country in the north. And Galilee is under the rule of Herod. You see, Herod was a Jewish king of sorts. The Roman Empire would often allow different people to have kings over them. But they were mostly puppet kings. They were loyal to Rome and the emperor's wishes. So Luke tells us that Herod is actually in Jerusalem for the Passover, and Pilate sent Jesus to see him. And the text tells us that Herod was very glad to see Jesus. The fame of Jesus had spread far and wide, especially the story of his miracles, And so the miracle worker here is now standing in Herod's palace and Herod is hoping to see some sign done by Jesus. But when Herod realizes that Jesus is not some genie in a bottle here to grant him some wishes, he begins to question Jesus. But Jesus won't answer him. And so the Jewish leaders are starting to get antsy. Their their plan isn't really working. Pilate doesn't really seem to care anything about Jesus. Herod just wants to see some tricks. They don't really seem to want to execute this Jesus. And so Luke tells us in verse 10 that the priests and the scribes begin to accuse Jesus with force, forcefully accusing Jesus. And so Herod and his soldiers join in the abuse of Jesus and they put a royal robe on Jesus to mock him. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Luke tells us these two men who had been enemies, this day became friends. The nations, the kings of the earth are gathering themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. And you see, in this trial, we see Jesus come to another defining moment this is the moment when jesus shows us exactly what he came to do you see jesus came to show us how to suffer and he came to suffer in our place notice first that jesus came to show us how to suffer so the apostle peter later on looked back on this moment when he wrote to a group of suffering churches and listen to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23. He said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is an innocent man suffering as a criminal. And in these trials, we see the example of Jesus that's worth following. You see, didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies? Didn't he teach us to turn the other cheek? Didn't he teach us to do good to those who hate you? to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you. And here is Jesus doing exactly what he told us to do. When he's insulted, he refuses to insult back. When he was struck, Jesus refuses to strike back. When he is mocked, he refuses to mock back. Jesus even goes to the cross loving his enemies to do good to those who hate him, to bless those who curse him. And what does he pray in his dying breath there on the cross? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus shows us how to suffer. And he's calling us to walk in the way of the cross and to suffer like him. And friends, that's hard for us, isn't it? That's hard for me. When someone offends me, everything inside of me says, make them pay. When someone speaks down to me, everything inside of me says, put them in their place. When someone hurts me, everything inside of me says, hurt them back. But Jesus comes to me. And in his grace, he shows me the path to forgiveness and mercy and love. Are you still holding on to how someone hurt you? Thinking, I could never forgive him for that thinking, I will never forgive her for that. Look to Jesus today. Lay it down and forgive as He has forgiven you. Are you struggling with what your spouse did? Or with what your kids said to you? Or what your friends did behind your back? Or how that pastor or that church hurt you? Look to Jesus. Choose mercy over judgment. Choose grace over anger. Choose love over vengeance. And do all of this just as Jesus did, trusting God above. Trusting that in the end, God will judge justly. In the end, God will make everything right. So let's look to Jesus today and let's follow his example. Let's suffer just like he suffered. But notice, secondly, that Jesus doesn't just give us an example. That's not the only reason that he came. That's not the only thing that he did. Jesus didn't just come to show us how to suffer. Jesus came to suffer for us. You see, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to this moment where Jesus stands trial. And he wrote these words about this suffering servant. Here's what Isaiah wrote about Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah is looking forward to this defining moment of Jesus when he was rejected by men. The moment when he was despised and dishonored. The moment he was overcome with sorrow and shame. The moment he was oppressed and afflicted. The moment he stood before the soldiers who beat him silent as a lamb. The moment he stood before Herod, yet not opening his mouth. Isaiah looked to this defining moment when Jesus was condemned as the one cursed by God. The moment he was crushed. The moment he was pierced. The moment he was slaughtered. And Isaiah says he did it for us did it for us to carry our sorrows and our griefs, to pay for our transgressions, to bring us peace and to heal us. He did that so that the Lord might lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered for us, and he did it because he Loves us. He loves us. He loves anxious us. He loves angry us. He loves bitter us. He loves jealous us. He loves lustful us. He loves doubting us. He loves selfish us. Us. He loves us. Jesus, in this defining moment, lays down his life to prove his love for us. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus suffered to show us and to save us. So, let's receive the gift of his love and let's walk in his steps. You know, there's a lot of important parts of a trial. There's the testimony of witnesses. There's the presentation of evidence. There's the arguments from counsel. But the most important moment of a trial comes at the end. The defining moment is when the final verdict comes in. And you know, we've come to this defining moment where Today, God has spoken to us about his son. Jesus is the very son of God. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven and to be king. And he came to suffer for us. So, what will we do with Jesus? What will be our verdict? Will we dismiss him? Will we push him to the side? Will we stay on the fence? Will we look to someone else? Or will we receive Him? Will we believe in Him? Will we follow Him and live for His kingdom? Will we honor Him and obey Him and worship Him? Will we accept the free gift of His grace and mercy and love? Will we love Him? him and adore him and treasure him forever brothers and sisters jesus is on trial in our text he's on trial in our world he's even on trial in our own hearts so let's receive him and let's see that he is worthy of all our devotion worthy of all of our love worthy of all of our worship Jesus is worthy. So let's worship him together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, God. Because it reminds us of just what Jesus faced that night. The beating, the mocking, the injustice of people lying about him. The hatred in their hearts seeking to want Him dead. The fact that most of this happened in the middle of the night, early in the morning, when most of Jerusalem was asleep. But we know that Christ did it because He loves us. He was willing to face this, willing to even die because He loves us. And so, Lord, we know that He is the Son of God, as You've shown us today. And so I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who has not confessed Jesus as Lord and believed upon His name. Lord, help them today to turn from their sin, to trust in Christ, and to treasure Him. Lord, we pray that today might be the day of salvation, that You would work in their hearts so that they might receive the free gift of grace and love in Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have confessed him as Lord and King, let us live like he is. Lord, we know that we will never regret living for King Jesus, even if it's hard. Even if it requires sacrifice. Even if it requires dying to ourselves. God, we will never regret living for Christ and his kingdom. So help us to grow in different areas of our lives where we need to submit ourselves where we need to say and pray and actually live like your kingdom comes and your will is done in our lives. And God, we thank you that Christ came to leave us an example for how to suffer. Help us to do that. When we're mistreated or when we're offended or when someone hurts us, help us not to get even or to get back at them, but to follow Christ's example and to love. And to show grace and mercy and kindness. We pray for that in our marriages and with our kids and with coworkers and roommates and family members and random people on the street. Lord, help us to love even when we suffer like Christ has loved. But more important than that, Lord, we thank you that Christ suffered for us. Our suffering for him is good, but his suffering for us is essential we would never be saved if he would not if he had not willingly laid down his life to save us to be pierced to be crushed to allow all of our sin to be laid upon him and we thank you for jesus that he did that for us and so help us to receive his love today lord as we seek to live lives that are worthy of him help us to be devoted to him to honor and obey him help us to Live for him, even as we sang earlier, to spread his fame throughout all the earth abroad. Help us to treasure Christ together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.